Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome to this episode of Unscripted. Today we are joined by a lady that probably needs very little introduction, a Muslim journalist, Yvonne Ridley. Assalamu alaikum, Yvonne, how are you? Walaikum salam. Very well and delighted to be making my first appearance on Unscripted. Oh, it's a pleasure for us to be having you as well. Thank you. So today's topic is the case of Sister Afia Siddiqui. The anniversary of her incarceration was only a few days ago. Kaleem, do you want to get us started with that? I'd love to. Yvonne, thank you very much for joining us. Can you tell us how you became involved in the case of Afia Siddiqui? Because if I'm right in saying, you were quite instrumental in bringing attention to it in the very, very early days. Well, I knew in the spring of 2004 that she had gone missing. And there was all sorts of speculation She'd been missing for about a year and the FBI started putting out uh, briefings to the Western media saying that she was Lady Al-Qaeda. That's how they referred to her. They said that she was in Africa buying up conflict diamonds from places like Sierra Leone um, for Al-Qaeda. I mean, it was quite an incredible detailed story which was blown apart by her lawyer, Elaine Whitfield Sharp in Boston, who held a press conference saying that this was a tissue of lies and that she couldn't possibly have been flying around selling and buying conflict diamonds when the FBI said, because she was running a child's uh, playgroup in Boston. And uh, they, they had documented evidence of this. Uh, the FBI suddenly went quiet, having been hoisted by its own petard. So we can't blame Donald Trump entirely for fake news. I'm afraid US intelligence has been in the business of fake news for some time. And everything went very quiet. And I began to look at her case. And then um, I interviewed Moazan Beg on his return from Guantanamo. And he was telling me about a woman's screams that he'd heard while he was in Guantanamo. And it was a tape recording and he was led to believe that it was his wife. Again, this was um, another ruse by US intelligence. But then he said the screams from the tape were also thought to be that of Afia Siddiqui. And he had spoken to a few other detainees in Guantanamo who had got there via Bagram in Afghanistan. And they talked about this woman who was being held in this men-only prison in a cage in full view of everybody where she couldn't go to the bathroom or the shower uh, without um, privacy, you know, and she was just in this horrendous situation. The prisoners in Bagram went on hunger strike to object to the way she was being treated. And um, there were graphic eyewitness accounts of gang rape uh, by US uh, military or, or contractors. And I set about trying to find out who is this wretched woman. And I contacted the US uh, military, the Pentagon. They denied all knowledge and said that um, I was uh, a fantasist and making it up. And the more I started digging into this case, I was then given her prison number 
by someone on the inside who was very concerned. So on being given concrete proof with the prison number and the eyewitness accounts, I then went to Pakistan and held a press conference with Imran Khan, who had also been alerted about the case. And that's when we unveiled um, the fact that this Pakistani woman was being held in Bagram and her prison number was 650. The American ambassador at the time in Islamabad, I can't remember her name now, but she said again that I was a fantasist. Lord Nazir Ahmed took up the case and suddenly we got a breakthrough. I don't know whether it was House of Lords note paper that um, scared them or what, but then the American authorities said, actually, we did have a woman in Bagram, um, but she's no longer there. And it's not Afia Siddiqui. And we weren't convinced, you know, we'd been lied to once. The, the American authorities had tried to discredit me. Um, in front of my international colleagues. And so we traveled the length and breadth of Pakistan. It's a fantastic country. I love the people there. And the one thing that you know is nobody can keep a secret in Pakistan. So I thought somebody somewhere in that country will know who Prisoner 650 is. And as I say, we went the length and breadth of Pakistan. The Pakistani media were brilliant although the government in Pakistan is corrupt and ineffectual, the media, when it gets going, can be quite robust. And we got a lot of support. And in fact, I spoke to half a million people at an amazing uh, Jamaat Islami rally in Lahore. And so everybody was talking about Afia Siddiqui. I went into Afghanistan and went right up to the doors of Bagram and knocked on the doors of Bagram. And the Americans couldn't believe that I'd gone there with filmmaker Hassan Ghani into this hostile area without any security. But they wouldn't let me in and they wouldn't talk about um, Afia's case. And then um, after all this pushing, suddenly this woman emerged in uh, Gardez in Afghanistan and there was this story woven around her appearance which was incredible and it was a woman from um, who was portrayed as some sort of terrorist and she was shot by American soldiers it turned out to be Afia can, can we go into that first can we go into what the alleged case by the Americans is against Afia and then into the concrete facts that are known about the case as well. Do you mind explaining both of those? Because they are quite the different. And uh, the governor of the district, who has since been discredited and, and exposed as a man who can't be trusted. Um, in fact, I think he's, well, he's no longer governor. He was sacked. He and the Americans wanted us to believe that this woman had appeared in the district saying that she wanted to kill the governor. And so the governor had said to the police, please look out for this woman who wants to kill me. And uh, this woman suddenly appeared in a very disorientated state outside the governor's house. And she had been um, dropped off there and had been told, stay there, don't move and you will be rescued. And this woman turned out to be Afia Siddiqui. So she 
was standing outside the governor's house under instruction not to move. And she heard the call to prayer at a nearby mosque. And forgetting what she'd been told, what she had to do, she then gravitated towards the mosque, towards the Azan. And of course, women do not wander around Afghanistan willy-nilly. You know, they just don't do it. And she wasn't covered, she wasn't wearing a burqa, and she naturally attracted attention. And people were saying, who are you, where are you from? And the police were called. And she was taken into custody. And the chief police officer, a man called Abdul Qadir, I interviewed him. He told me when he saw her, she was in a completely distressed state. In his 30, 40 years of police work, he said that in his assessment, she had been um, held in captivity, the pallor of her skin and everything, you know, just didn't add up. And he was investigating who she was and, and where she had come from. Apparently in her handbag, there was um, a picture of the Empire Estate Building and three different types of chemical explosives. And it was quite clear to, to anybody that this woman was being set up. And this old wily police chief wanted to get to the bottom of it. The FBI contacted the station and said, we're coming to get her. And he said, no, this is my station, my investigation. And once I've finished, then we'll decide what to do with her. And the Americans couldn't believe that someone was saying this to them. What they expected was, oh, yes, you can have her. And so the FBI went down the next day, team-handed with about uh, 16 armed soldiers. And they went into this room and an argument ensued about custody. And the argument continued outside and the soldiers were left inside. And the soldiers ended up shooting Afia Siddiqui. She had to then be evacuated and treated in hospital. And of course, the best equipped hospital to deal with gunshot wounds was uh, the US military hospital in Bagram. And uh, she was taken there. From there, she was uh, flown to America. Now, all the while, the Americans are breaking the Vienna Conventions, the Geneva Conventions. She's not given access to consular officials. And furthermore, she is charged with an alleged crime which happened in Afghanistan on Afghan soil, not US military soil, not occupied lands. And uh, she was ended up being tried in a court in New York that had absolutely no jurisdiction whatsoever. The court case should not have gone ahead. Furthermore, it was held in the shadows of where the Twin Towers had stood. You know, she was never going to get a fair trial. And uh, I have often said that she is the most wronged woman on the planet. It's an incredible case. And I do wish my colleagues in the mainstream media would investigate it. It is just an incredibly shocking and it's very, very sad. In fact, Ramsey MacDonald, the former US Attorney General, has also investigated the case. And he's of the same opinion as me. You know, this is a grave miscarriage of justice.
Now, we know that the American judicial system, like any other judicial system in the world, is flawed. There are miscarriages of justice, and this is one of them. It's absolutely heartbreaking what has happened to this woman. What was interesting about the actual trial is that the judge refused to have any backdrop to her case heard in court, so nobody could make any reference to her being in Bagram. All she was tried on was that she had attempted to shoot American soldiers. The whole fabric of the case was a nonsense. And because I had gone down to the place where she'd been held in Afghanistan and had filmed with Hassan Ghani and interviewed eyewitnesses, the Americans couldn't go ahead with their Mickey Mouse story. And so they had to rely on the eyewitness accounts of the American soldiers who were in the room when Afia was shot. They want us to believe this tiny, diminutive little woman sprang from behind some curtains, overpowered one of them and took his gun and started shooting at them. But none of our photographic and filmed evidence supports this. There is no crime scene investigative evidence that supports this. In fact, all the science supports Afia Siddiqui. All the CSI. This, you is know, a, this is an incredible assertion that they make that a small sort of 80, 90 pound woman can be skilled enough to tackle and disarm a Marine. Especially. Um, and, then, and then be unskilled enough to then miss with every shot that she allegedly fired. Yeah. How, how do they try and square that circle? Well, the soldiers all scrubbed up, put on their best military uniforms, went into the court in military uniform and sang from the same well-rehearsed hymn sheet. And, of course, the hand-picked American jury, what were they going to do? Were they going to believe Lady Al-Qaeda and the supporting scientific evidence or were they going to go with their hearts? And they went with their hearts and they, you know, supported the version of the American soldiers. How long did Afia get for the crime of attempted murder? She got 86 years. In your experience as a journalist who's covered a lot of criminal cases, covered all sorts of different things like this, is 86 years for attempted murder normal? Of course it's not. But uh, this ranks alongside, in terms of miscarriages of justice, this ranks alongside the Guildford Four, the Birmingham Six. You know, if you look at the evidence, it unravels very, very quickly. But what was interesting about the case, the opening lines from the prosecution was, this woman is not Al-Qaeda, this woman is not a terrorist, and that was quite an interesting opening for the prosecution. So after trying to portray her as Lady Al-Qaeda, and some of the sloppy journalists still call her that, that was an interesting uh, opening line. Two members of the jury were, I think, um, dismissed or allowed to go after, and I want you to, to consider this, 
while the case was being heard, a man who could have come out of central casting was able to get into that court wearing, well, he looked like Lawrence of Arabia, I'm told, you know, wearing a, a great big turban and a sweeping gown. All of the Pakistan media, anybody with an olive skin, uh, was kept in a spillover court to record and report on the event. But this member of the public somehow was able to get into this New York court, go in and sit down and shout, Afia is my sister in Islam, and nobody interrupted him. And then as the jury filed out for the end of one particular day, he aimed his fingers at us in a gun-like fashion and pointed this, you know, finger gun at both of the jurors and uh, then was able to walk out of this court and was never seen again. The jurors, quite naturally, were a bit disturbed, having been threatened. You know, the message was quite clear. And, um, you know, who was this mystery man? I suggest that he came from American intelligence just to, you know, seal the deal. But imagine, you know, this is the first um, or one of the first high profile trials, uh, loads of security, massive public interest. You can't get a seat. You know, the Pakistani media are pushed over into a spillover court where they have to rely on a video link. And this Lawrence of Arabia character is able to walk through all of this, sit in the court and make uh, threatening hand signals at the jurors and then walk out again unimpeded. It's amazing. But you couldn't make this up. Uh, as a writer, you sort of look for twists like this to, to put into scripts and stuff and, and they're, they're hard to come by. What so I have established is the real story in um, around about March 2003, Afia was um, kidnapped from a taxi with her three children in a joint Pakistan intelligence US-led operation after someone had said she is Al-Qaeda. Now we know by the 800 or so individuals who ended up in Guantanamo that um, a lot of them were sold to the Americans who were flashing the cash around looking for any Al-Qaeda suspects. But I want you to consider this. If she was Al-Qaeda, if she was going to Afghanistan in, um, on some sort of jihad, would she have taken her three children aged five, three, and a babe in arms? You know, all the women who are listening to this now know that they won't even go to the corner shop with, with all of their children because it's a mission impossible. So why, why would any woman take her three children into Afghanistan? And of course, Afghanistan, the Taliban might not be in control there now, but it, the same culture is still prevalent in Afghanistan and women just don't wander around on their own. You know, it just isn't done. Can you tell so, us a little bit more about her three children? What happened to them and, and where they've been? 
Oh, right. Well, the baby boy, Suleiman, um, hasn't been seen. There are various rumours unsubstantiated that uh, he was dropped and injured fatally in the operation when, uh, when her taxi was stopped and she was dragged out. Um, the two other children, Ahmed and Miriam, subsequently turned up dumped in, in the streets near the family home in Karachi. And I've met Ahmed and Miriam, and they're both delightful children. Well, they're, they're after, young. After how long were they dumped from the time that she was kidnapped? Uh, Ahmed was handed over almost immediately after Afia was uh, shot. I think he was reunited about um, two or three months after Afia was shot. And the thing is with Mariam and Ahmed, they both had American accents. They both spoke English very well and, and not a great command of their native language, Urdu, which tends to suggest that um, in the five years that they were also missing, um, they were held in American hands. You know, that, that, that's uh, one of the conclusions. Have, have, they, have they said anything about their time, their time away, that missing five years? Well, I think that this is something, you know, the, um, the family had, were very protective over the two. And, uh, you know, these two are bo- both U.S. citizens, by the way. They both um, have U.S. passports, unlike their, their mother. And these, uh, th- th- I think that there may be a case pending because um, I think they have a, a story to tell, um, but they're not ready to tell it just yet. Absolutely shocking. You speak so compellingly about this. I just want to ask you, just to summarise in brief, before Nadim sort of leads us out, what are your thoughts on, on the war on terror and women in particular and the cases of people like Afia and the people who, the, the sisters in particular that have been affected by the war on terror because you've done so much over your career to advocate for sisters and for women in general. And yeah, I'd, I'd just like to, to get your thoughts on that. Well, the war on terror was launched by George Bush and Tony Blair at a time where the American people were in pain and in shock. Their country hadn't been invaded since the English burned down the White House. And, uh, you know, this had a a great psychological trauma on them that, that, you know, 9-11. And so they were in a great deal of pain. to roll in a load of legislation which reduced the very liberties and freedoms he said the terrorists were wanting to reduce so or hated so much. So, um, so a, a lot of um, money was thrown at it and in the anger and the desire for revenge uh, we saw the invasion of Afghanistan but we also saw um, a, a great deal of injustices and I would uh, submit that the, the real victims in the war on terror have been the women. The women like Afia Siddiqui, who have been caught up, and also the wives and daughters of the men who've been swept away. Because the men in Guantanamo um, and Bagram and other dark sites went through all sorts of horrific torture. 
but back home it was left to their wives to hold up the family to be the glue to keep everyone together to try and work out where their husbands and fathers and, and sons were and what was being done to them and um, you know nobody wants to be locked up and certainly not at the hands of uh, in black sites uh, for the Americans but uh, as a former prisoner I can, uh, myself, I can tell you it's a lot worse on the outside trying to imagine what is happening to your loved one than, uh, than being on the inside. And uh, so I, I think that the women have been impacted far more in the war on terror. The men have undoubtedly suffered and had torture inflicted on them, but the, the mental suffering of, of the women has been horrific and these women have got to be strong to keep the families together and to make sure that there's a home waiting for the men when they return thank you so much Yvonne and your insights were greatly appreciated and I think that everybody needs to be aware of this case and aware of what's happened to Afia Siddiqui I suggest that uh, people go and do some some further reading on this case and get involved in the organization to try and pressure for Afia Siddiqui's repatriation to her home country, to Pakistan. To be honest, there's so much more we could say about this and, and her treatment in prison in America. But I think I'll just narrate one thing that I heard from Afia's sister. Afia's sister was on a phone call with Afia Siddiqui and um, she asked how she was, uh, how she was doing. And uh, Afia Siddiqui uh, mentioned that every night that she, she dreamt of the Prophet, she said that she dreamt of him. And um, one night she said, Ya Rasulullah, I don't think I can take the test upon me anymore. I don't think I can continue to take this test. And she narrated to her sister that uh, the Prophet said to her, Oh, Afia, you are not the one being tested. And um, I think that's a very important thing for us all to remember, that the situation that our sister Afia finds herself in is upon all of us to do what we can to speak out about this case and to try and, and get her the justice that so far she's been denied. Uh, Nadim, do you have any uh, final words? I'm absolutely lost for words. I think I've heard Yvonne, I've heard you speak about this uh, numerous times. I've followed the case. And every time I hear her story, it's, I'm lost for words, absolutely shocking injustice that has happened to her. And just why, why Api Siddiqui? Why this poor woman? Why have the US treated her so cruelly and vindictively? I don't think it's something that any of us will ever get over anytime soon. I don't think it's anything that we're gonna understand anytime soon just to echo what you've both been saying, to continue raising this awareness of her case and her situation and her plight and just keep pushing, I think, to try and get her out of the situation she's in, get her out of that prison of torture that she's in. There is um, a solution. There is a solution. And the Pakistan government could approach the Americans and offer to give them Dr. Afridi the man who they've locked up over the Osama bin Laden case, who was working with the CIA, and the Americans are very keen to have him. They want him to show to the world, we look after people who help us. And uh, they would happily 
exchange Afia Siddiqui for Dr. Afridi. Because believe it or not, after all this has happened, Afia is no longer regarded as Lady Al-Qaeda, a top asset or anything by the Americans. They'd be quite happy to let her go. For now, they look at her as somebody quite insignificant and they would see it as a good trade if they could have Dr. Afridi in exchange. But you know where the block is? It's not in Washington. It's in Islamabad. Well, I think that there we have it. The solution seems to be so simple and yet almost impossible to grasp. I think, unfortunately, we're out of time. I would love to hear more about this and discuss more on it, but I think we're out of time, unfortunately. But as always, um, like, subscribe and, and share, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.